From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Datebook Podcast. I'm Peter Hartlob, and Marikar Mendoza is here leading the discussion today about crazy rich Asians. This is becoming a phenomenon, Marikar. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing to hear all the buzz, see all the hype on mainstream and on social. Um, I, I'm just kind of amazed at the, the momentum coming into the movie's opening. And um, I'm really excited to, to talk about it today. Yeah, I, I wrote my summer movie preview a couple months ago and did not include it, not even in the also-ran movies. So, like, Hotel Transylvania 3 and the first Purge was in there, and this was not. I was blindsided. You know what's funny is uh, as much hype as I have seen, I am amazed at how some Asian Americans don't even know it's it was out there. And I'm like, where are you living under a rock? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have Vanessa Hua joining us. Yes, she is a San Francisco Chronicle columnist. Her column runs on Friday, and she's also an author. Her new book, A River of Stars, is out now. Yeah, it just came out today. Um, Crazy Rich Asians, we should mention, kind of light spoilers. We don't give away any major plot points, but we do talk about the movie and a couple of themes in it, so know that going in. But yeah, let's talk about Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians, which as of this recording uh, hasn't been out yet, but it's already gotten a lot of buzz. And I watched it in Houston uh, with like a group of more than 100 Asian journalists from the Asian American Journalists Association. And it was amazing. Um, So amazing that I called you right after (laughs) watching that. But, um, you know, I found that it was really similar to watching Black Panther in a in the Bay Area theaters out here because as folks were cheering in Black Panther for their first, you know, for that first scene in Oakland, people in the group that I watched were totally hooting and hollering when they first saw Constance Wu on screen and any of those and were particularly rowdy with any Asian cultural references. And it was just so great to be a part of that moment. And so I'm kind of curious to know how it felt when you watched the movie. So I saw the movie at a press screener with Peter, and so it was a different crowd, but this being San Francisco, there was still a lot of Asian American representation in the audience. And yeah, by that same token, I felt, um, you know, there was that that recognition, I think. Um, you know, sure, there was, uh, you know, Aquafina had a amazing humorous turn, and, um, you know, it was wonderful to see Constance Wu so warm and uh, beautiful in in all her different outfits. Um, But it was, for me, it was, you know, the inside jokes, that feeling of recognition and being made visible finally on on a big Hollywood movie. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and that's not to say you had to be Asian to appreciate this film, which um, I wanted to be very clear when I told my friends and I mean, I did immediately text my sisters and like, oh, my God, we all have to go watch this together. But even then, I was like, you know, immediately went over and told my boyfriend, who is white, and said, I think we should watch this together. I mean, he's not a big rom-com guy, but even still, I think it's a really cool thing to kind of experience with other people 
Well, it has all the, the you know all the things that you look for in a classic rom com, right? The the humor, the misunderstandings, but then we have this really wonderful setting that might be unusual to members of the audience in the U.S., certainly not to people from Singapore or from Asia, but, um, you know, it just, it mixes things up. And I think there is a universality to the tale. Yeah, definitely. What was your take on it, Peter? I I was expecting, so I reviewed the movie for The Chronicle, and I was going in there with a little bit of trepidation as a reviewer thinking, are there going to be subjects here that I don't understand? And then what does that mean about my review? And I actually thought John M. Chu, the director, went in the opposite direction, making very much a a movie with a lot of um, references to his culture, but also making it very inclusive. I never at any point felt like um, I was an outsider looking in. I felt like I was learning and being entertained. And I think that's one of the real positives of the movie it's fun and entertaining no matter who you are yeah and to be clear i am filipino american so um it's different there was a it was a little you know the cultural references in there were different but i got it enough being a part of the asian community i was sitting next to one of my best friends she's chinese american and she certainly got a little bit more of the nuances slightly i mean we were both born in the bay area so you know we we're more Americanized, I guess, than some folks that might have been able to kind of pick up the even more of the nuances of Singapore and and um, the Chinese culture, if you were you know of from from the mainland. But um, but yeah, I think coming out of it, I heard a lot of, of folks just just truly enjoying the storyline for what it was. Yes, definitely. And I'm also Chinese American as well, born and raised in the Bay Area. Um, but, you know, I have friends who are from Singapore and um, I mean, it's a very distinct culture from being Chinese American. And I think that's one of the points of the movie that the Chinese or the you know Asian community is not a monolith, that you might have someone like Rachel Chu, um, who is uh, actually she in the book, she grows up in Palo Alto, I believe. And so but she comes to Singapore and she's you know, you think it'd be like the same culture, but in, instead um, we see that she's a fish out of water. And yet so often um, we get treated as like all look same, all are same. And so really uh, one of the things that I really drew from the movie and, and really enjoyed was just seeing the, the great diversity within um you know, the Chinese American community or I, Chinese I, community. Yeah. I liked going with Vanessa and uh, <laughs> Vanessa and I, are, we've been friends for a long time. Um, so we went and got dinner and then went to the movie and I didn't feel like I didn't understand a lot of it, but there were a lot of questions that I had, like Singapore, um, presented. I, one of my first questions to you, I think Vanessa was, is Singapore really that much like Las Vegas, you know, <laughs> or, or did they kind of film it a certain way to make it look a little bit more splashy and colorful and, and, uh, touristy, I think, than it is. Um, I had a couple of cultural questions, and uh, I, I don't. I think this is going to be a non-spoiler podcast. Marikar, you tell me if I'm wrong. I think you'll be fine. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but I, the ending. There were points about the ending that I actually had to have it explained to me. Mm. But that's true in like probably 50 percent of the films that I go to. Anyway, I needed an explanation. And I don't think it was the movie's fault. I think it was a combination of my cluelessness and maybe not understanding some of the cultural aspects of the movie. I still enjoyed the movie. I gave it a good review. Yeah. 
Um, my girlfriend, she, the, the one I was telling you about, she grew up in Danville, but um, she's, Chinese Amer- she's Chinese American, and uh, she cried like three times in the film. I cried once for sure, like not ugly cry, but it was really, <laughs> it was a really nice moment. And again, that, I think that moment is very universal for everybody. As a child of immigrant parents who had to sacrifice to bring us here, um, that really choked me up big time for sure. Um, and I, I mean, and I'm thankful I have both of my parents. My dad was in the, in the Navy, um, stationed in Alameda, actually. That's how we ended up in the Bay Area. But um, he told me all the time about how, like, you know, I brought you here. You know, I did these things so that you guys can be raised here in America and have this great life. And um, so, yeah, not to give away too much, but there is a little bit of that. So if you guys are first generation you know, any culture here, I think that resonates quite a bit. Well, the truth of the, matter, of the matter, though, is right now we're in a political moment where immigration is really in the news and, you know, being, you know, coming out of the White House or, you know, um, and, you know, the the movie couldn't have predicted that. The author couldn't have predicted that. But um, it's, for me, I think stories that show the humanity um, you know, even within a rom-com context, are, are just so important right now. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I didn't read the book beforehand, but I'm very excited to read it now. But having read it, did what did you think about um, how it translated on screen? Yeah, I mean, they. Um, it's a really fun, uh, frothy read, like full of you know all these fancy brands that I'll never wear or even get within you know miles of um but and and the book is has is more sprawling in a sense like many more subplots that they're able to develop um I thought it was a good choice in the movie they I think strengthen the backstory and sort of the central tension that we see in the movie that is just one of many plots in the book so I I think they made a good choice with that did you ever watch the debut yes I did I saw it with Ryan and Pia Mm-hmm. Our friends, mutual friends, but yeah, it was it, it was filmed in Daly City, right? Yeah, it, I remember. So, oh, maybe our, you can explain what it's yeah. So what a debut is the reason yeah. why I brought this up was because it was probably one of the things that that popped in my mind almost immediately out of the well. Once I heard about the movie even being happening, um, but yeah, the debut is about. So the debut is a cotillion. It's like. It's a Fili- coming of age story for Filipino Americans, right? And and a cotillion is like a quinceanera for you know, like that's very similar to what it was. And I remember when the movie came out; I think it came out in two thousand one. So that means I was a senior in high school, about a year after the age that you're supposed to have a cotillion. I was really bummed out; I didn't get my cotillion. <laughs> but um, the best part about it was that it was this; it was all Filipino Americans in this film made out of the Bay Area, so it was really cool. I remember watching it with a group of friends in high school, but I was actually, I think I might have been the only Filipino-American in my immediate group that went to watch it. Anywho, it was really awesome to watch because I think it was the very first Filipino-American movie that I got to see on the big screen like that. I think I watched it in Milpitas even, so there was a bunch of Filipinos in that theater, if you can imagine. <laughs> um, and it starred Dante Bosco, who was Rufio in Hook, which, you know, just seeing him in Hook as Rufio was was a big deal. I think we were all cheering Rufio, Rufio, you know, in the movie. It was it was pretty cool. Um, 
And yeah, again, that was that was a moment that I kind of got to relive watching Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, I in fact I I vividly remember the movie. There wasn't there there was even a part where someone non-Filipino came over to the main character's house and he had these giant wooden fork like the wooden art fork and sculpture, spoon. wooden yeah. fork and spoon, and he had to sort of try and explain that. Um, and for me, hearing you talk about the debut made me think about uh, when I saw the Joy Luck Club for the first time, and that was my freshman year of college. And um, I'd already read the book in high school, and you know the whole dorm went, and you know there's a lot of tears and laughter. And um, it, it was also it was set in the Bay Area, and we went to school in the Bay Area, or part of the movie was set in the Bay Area, and also China. And it was just um, very special to to kind of see a majority Asian American cast um, of the likes that we haven't really seen in another Hollywood movie until now. You know, I, I loved Joy Luck Club, read the book, loved the book. There, and maybe it was because I was younger then, but I didn't get that feeling that I got when I watched Crazy Rich Asians. And again, maybe it's the political climate or something, mm-hmm. but Joy Luck Club was a wonderful movie. It meant a lot to the Asian American community then and, and still does now, but I don't know. There was something about it that made it feel a little more um, exclusive, I think, for me. Oh, you mean uh, more for Chinese Americans than more broadly Asian Americans? Right. But maybe, I mean, the thinking around the Asian American community has also changed and there's always, you know, is it inclusive enough? Is it East Asian centric or does it include South Asians and Pacific Islanders enough? And that's something that I think has, you know, evolved over the last two decades. I think Crazy Rich Asians, when I saw it, I felt like walking away, you could remake this movie with another culture and it wouldn't change that much. I mean, the screenplay would change and some references would change and maybe you'd make some adjustments, cultural adjustments, but it wouldn't change that much. I don't feel that way with Joy Luck Club. I mean, it, it uh, I can't see them remaking Joy Luck Club with, you know, all Latino cast. Um, so I think Crazy Rich Asians maybe is a little bit more... Mainstream. Uh, mainstream, yeah, yeah and, and probably deliberately so. But though, I mean, I don't know. I What are some other... Joy Luck Club for me was about mother-daughter relationships, and I don't know what are some of the big mainstream mother-daughter relationships movies out there. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, or in the past. Or, yeah. <laughs> Magnolia. or yeah. Steel Magnolia? Steel Magnolia. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I remember watching that. Mama yeah. Mia. Mama <laughs> Mia, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so after the film... Uh, you know, everybody crowded around the movie poster and like reenacted the, and, and did the photo. Um, somebody had mentioned, someone had mentioned though, um, they felt like the movie was being really, um, was, was being very apparent about how they wanted to frame Asian men as sexy. And I mean, let's be honest here. The guys in this film, they, they were hot. But you could, you could bounce a coin <laughs> off their abs. Yeah, yeah. And so there was certainly that. But the person that had said this to me was saying they were, it was so like over the top. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, it's a rom-com, right? And you want some eye candy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also been, you know, said in commentary I've seen that this was really about the female gaze. No, you know, as much as say Magic Mike, it was for our pleasure. Um, and I think 
you know, it, it could also be in response to the many decades in which uh, Asian men have been relegated to, you know, nerdy or dorky roles. I think for me, the bane of my existence growing up was Long Duck Dong in uh, 16 Candles. He was a you know, a, a Japanese exchange student who was incomprehensible, really awkward. Um, although my husband points out he he seemed perhaps the happiest of them all because he, <laughs> he he got lucky. You know, his very first high school dance. Um, but but I think the movie in some ways is sort of like we're all haunted by the ghost of Long Duck Dong, and so maybe we do. You know, the eye candy is for uh, you know. Pleasurable reasons, but also it is in some ways a, a political statement. Yeah. I think it, the movie is coming out at a really exciting time for Asian Americans in, in pop culture because um, we have things like um, Jenny Han's To All the Boys I've Loved Before. It's coming out streaming on Netflix. Uh, Min Jin Lee's Pachinko was just picked up um, by Apple for uh, making it into streaming television. Uh, John Cho has a thriller coming out later this month. Um, and all sorts of Asian American novels have been coming out this summer, too. Yeah, actually, speaking of which, spe- uh, tell us about your, your new book. Sure. I, um, today is pub day, so it's my book's birthday. I'm really excited about it. It's called A River of Stars, um, and it's based, you know, it reflects the reporting I've done on the Asia and Asian American community for the last two decades. Um, when people ask me what it's about, I say it's a pregnant Thelma and Louise. And um, it involves, uh, you know, there are these maternity centers, these maternity hotels in Southern California, where pregnant Chinese women will come to give birth, so their kids will get U.S. citizenship. My main character gets betrayed, and she discovers something in a sonogram, so she has to take off with a teenage pregnant stowaway in the back of the van, and they end up in San Francisco's Chinatown. Whoa. What kind of research went into that were you in Chinatown a lot were you in the library or or were you just winging it (laughs) (laughs) well I mean I certainly uh, you know had over the years covered many stories about immigrant stories out of Chinatown Um, but I also you know I I looked at news reports I looked at court documents um, and also I was pregnant at the time I first started hearing about these maternity centers. And it just got me thinking about what it would be like to be pregnant so far from home. What would drive people, you know, what price American citizenship that you'd be willing to make that sacrifice. Um, And I also thought about, like, the potential for drama and for humor and getting a whole bunch of pregnant women (laughs) together. Um, And But I've always thought as a fiction writer that um, where the official record ends, that's where the imaginative leap of empathy can begin. So you you said book birthday? Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's August 14th, the day that your book came out. How does the book arrive? Like, what? Wh- when did you first see the book? What's that process like? Oh, uh, well, finished copies arrived a month ago. I think that's um, in a box that came in a you know, a FedEx package that landed on my doorstep. And every movie I've seen, it's a it's a box with like 50 books in it. Right. And that seems like like heavy on the shipping charges. Is that how it happened in real life? Uh, I Yeah, my publisher, I, I think publishing does help prop up the, the delivery uh, services in this country. So yeah. it's always very exciting um, to sort of track the package and knowing that it's coming on the doorstep. So... Um, I mean, it's sort of silly, but like when the the very first copy they they FedEx overnight, and then a box of books arrived a few days later. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had my 
my brother was around, so I had him like film me opening it because it felt as momentous as giving birth. <laughs> Although I, we actually didn't film that moment when I had my sons. <laughs> it's a beautiful book. I love the cover. For oh, thank it, you. Too. Um, I have one question. Can I add? I, I'm curious about the reviews of this film. So when Coco came out, there was criticism that there w- wasn't a single Latino critic who reviewed it, and then it was later Oscar V alone very nicely wrote to that person and pointed out that I'm half Mexican, but it was, so that's half one half Mexican third generation (laughs) critic who reviewed Coco among mainstream critics. The reviews are coming out. Are you seeing a same issue with crazy rich Asians and, and what's the mix been like there? I've noticed a lot of people being very conscious about including uh, Asian American voices if not the direct movie reviewer, it's in other stories. That's what I've seen. Yeah, I actually haven't read any of the reviews yet, but I have seen quite a bit of commentary, I think, from like NPR's Code Switch had a really great commentary. And, you know, there's lots of discussion, I think, mm-hmm. um, by this um, among, you know, Asian Americans in mainstream publications. Sure. And, you know, as an assigning editor, I have to say it was certainly something that came across my mind like, oh, we should we have a um, Asian American person write the review? And I talked to Peter about this actually before he went to the film. And you know the thing is, I I feel one Peter does a great job putting in all that context, um, whether he is of that culture or not. Um, but I also feel like we need to be conscious of how far we go with that because does that mean I can only write about female, you know, topics? Should I only be able to write about Filipino and Filipino-American artists or whatever? You know, we we did a a story on Rubia Barra, the Filipino-American rapper from the East Bay, and it was uh, Ryan Cost wrote the story. He is a huge fan of hers. He's a white gay man from, um, I, I forget where he's actually from, but he's a He's not even from the Bay Area or whatever, but like, am I to say that, hey, you can't write that story? No way. He did a great job. And it was good that I was his editor because there were a couple of things in terms of like translating Tagalog or something like that that was helpful to editing his story. But he didn't have to be a Filipino American woman to write that story. And so I feel like, yes, let's be conscious about including more of those diverse voices, but let's not go to the point where we take people off a story simply because of not being of that culture. Right. You know I mean, saying? certainly you can write outside your ethnicity and culture and, and gender. But I think you pointed out something important that um, newsroom diversity needs to be at all levels so that, you you know, you have a reporter that's open minded and curious and humble and willing to explore the world. But you also want to make sure there's some diversity in the newsroom. I mean, and this holds true for, say, a movie studio. Right. And you know, is, you know, does the director of the movie necessarily have to be one way or another? Um, But at the same time, you want to make sure there's people um, internally at all levels who can help, um, you know, course correct or help root for the movie. And, you know, it it takes people both from that community and allies as well. I think I think that it's also a little different now than it was 10 or 15 years ago, where it used to be the movie review came out and that was the Chronicles, you know, sole 
uh, sole voice on that movie. Now we have social media. We're all talking about things on social media. We have podcasts. We're recording a podcast right now. I don't think the discussion starts and ends with a review like it used to. And chronic- right, the review delivered on your doorstep, whereas now the discussion is back and forth you know, yeah. two-way. And the Chronicle is a very diverse newsroom, much more so in the last 10 years. So as far as these discussions are being had in a story like the phenomenon of crazy rich Asians happens, there are going to be a lot more voices involved than just the critic. And I think that's changed. Yeah. And yeah. again, to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be. I'm, I'm just glad that we are thinking in that way yeah. where we did step back and go, hmm, do we have the right reviewer for this movie? Or, you know, what other stories can we say and who should be involved in telling that story and having that discussion? And, um, yeah, diversity is definitely important in doing that because, like you said, course correcting. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Peter, I'm going to call you out on this because yeah, I thought yeah. it was really funny when you did um, your podcast with Jello, Jello Biafra. Oh, yeah. And you were talking about the Mabuhai Gardens Club, yeah. and you had been saying it wrong I've in the podcast. And I was like, "Dude, I'm Filipino. You should ask <laughs> I should me." Should have asked you. <laughs> no, that, and yeah. that's that's the hardest thing about a podcast is that it's not correctable, like with a story where you can put a note on it or something. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, there's there's always you know more to do, and and I've probably said that wrong for 30 years, a thousand times. So thank you for for correcting me on that. But yeah, diversity and having that as a tool in, in newsrooms, you know, so that you can lean over and ask somebody, hey, how do you say that? Or is this the right translation? Those kind of things. I mean, seeing on Slack, in our newsroom Slack, when people need a translation for something, hey, does anybody speak Mandarin? Like, that's great. That's great that we can do that and that people are thinking about that instead of like trying to do everything, you know, in a vacuum or whatever. Right, right. And and sort of just kind of going back to the point of the, the movie industry is just, I mean, we're, whatever your type of media, you know, television, journalism or, or movies, I mean, I think there's a value uh, not only in reflecting the way the world as it really is, but there are great stories in these communities. And so this is you know, th- this is this is where we can go find them. Well, thank you so much for coming in, especially on your book birthday. Congratulations on that. Maybe we'll see that on the screen. I'd love that. <laughs> Thanks so much again. Thanks, Peter. You're listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Vanessa Hua. Our producer today is Peter Hartlob. Executive producer is Fernando Diaz. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.